I hope that young people don't have to fight for their lives, you know, mm-hmm. but I do think that young people are always going to have a perspective that's a little different. Um, and that is a perspective that should be included in every space. I'm Daniel. I'm Damon. And welcome to Climate Change Makers, presented by Elevate Energy. For 20 years, Elevate Energy has been building equity through climate action by improving quality of life for underserved communities, helping them save money, improve their environment, and access opportunities in the workplace that will be part of tackling climate change. As they move into the next decade of their work, they're looking to learn from their fellow community members who are equitably transforming the environmental legacy of their homes, neighborhoods, cities, and futures. And they brought the two of us in to help. We're here. We host a weekly radio show and podcast called Ergo here in Chicago, where we interview artists, organizers, people reshaping the culture of our city and world for the more equitable and creative. And we're excited to be doing that work around climate change and environmental justice with Elevate. So over the next five episodes, we're going to talk with some of Illinois' most impactful environmental justice visionaries who have been working to build a more equitable and sustainable world and explore what ideas guide their work, which strategies have been effective, and what advice they have for Elevate Energy as the organization works to put people and the planet first in the fight to build equity through climate action. Our first episode's guest is Susie Schlossberg. Susie is the co-director and chair of the political action team for the Chicago Youth Alliance for Climate Action. The Chicago Youth Alliance for Climate Action is a student-led organization that promotes environmental education and engages government officials, private sector organizations, and community members in constructive dialogue. Susie is a senior at Whitney Young High School here in Chicago. She's also on the steering committee for the Ready for 100 Chicago Collective and is a student intern at the Sierra Club office. We had a great conversation with Susie. She was um, extremely thoughtful and and informative about how young people are approaching this work. Uh, What are some new perspectives that generations maybe need to bridge the gap on in terms of how to approach and also rooting it in her own identity, not only as a student, but someone whose experience intersects at the national level as someone of, of American citizenship, but also born in China and how central those two spaces are to the global conversation on climate action. So let's get into this conversation with Susie. We started out by asking her, what we ask every guest we talk to. In this time, this moment, this season, how is the world treating her and how is she treating the world? Right now, I'm at a time where there's a lot of uncertainty, like in my life, because I'm waiting back from a lot of colleges. Mm. And so the sort of stress of what that is all going to look like later on, you know, in the spring is kind of just giving me a little bit of like, ah, like I don't really know what I'm doing. It's also like, I'm starting second semester as a senior, and I'd been told for like four years that it was going to just be so fun and really relaxing, but a lot of my classes have just gotten harder. And I'm like, why am I, you know, why is it still this stressful for me? No, the trick is you don't care as much. But I feel like I still do care. That's the thing. Uh, like, it's because I think my teachers still care. So I feel like I have to care. Uh, and I don't want to just completely, like, shut down. Oh, if you're still one of those good people. Me. That's what yeah. this is. The problem is that you're a good person. That, that empathetic care. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, I hate math, but my math teacher is lovely. <laughs> like, she's lovely. And she is, she tries so hard to teach us. And I'm like, I can't be rude to you. Like, I can't <laughs> What's do her it. Miss Pierce. Oh, shout, shout out, Miss Pierce. Yeah, yeah, shout out to Miss Pierce. Yeah, here got some begrudging math love <laughs> Yes. You have to be so nice to get someone to do a thing they don't want to do. Yeah, and that's exactly. And and she also just like is Which is what teaching is. (laughs) Precisely. (laughs) Right. Um, But it's, it's, I think I'm 
feeling okay for the most part. Yesterday, mm. I um, tutored some kids. Uh, I tutor in Chinatown, and it was really nice because it's like I really love the kids that I work with, mm. and they're so eager to learn, which is like something that I feel like a lot of people around me just don't like. That's just not the case for us anymore. But mm. like they're like in fifth grade and fourth grade, and so they're st- they're like so bright and excited, and so like. Sometimes I'll be like, hey, you've done your lessons for, you know, two hours. You can take a break. And then they're like, no, no, I don't want to take a break. Like, I want to keep going. And I'm like, that's just so, it's so nice seeing that kind of energy. And so it's also really, I'm really happy that I love my work. Mm -hmm. And so I think overall things are good. So building off of that, um, that's kind of how you're treating the people and the people are treating you. Let's go non-people. Okay, non-people. How are the animals, the air, the flora, the fauna, the environment that you walk through every day, how is that treating you and how are you treating that these days? For these past couple days, actually today and yesterday in particular, because the weather has been so beautiful, I think I've been a lot happier just in just yesterday when I realized that like it was like five o'clock in the afternoon and I was like walking like just down my block because I was coming back from the train. And then I realized that it was like five o'clock and it was still like bright outside. Like Mm -hmm. the sun wasn't even setting. I was like, it was just like spring was coming like this is like and I feel like there's always a time in a year where like you realize that and then it's such a nice realization because winter is just like this eternal thing that just seems to go on until one day you're like hey it's we're we're going the other way I also think that in terms of what I've been feeling about you know nature or the environment around me I wish that I'd spend some more time like outside in these past few months because I Mm. think winter just has a tendency to like make me shut myself inside my like home because it's like warm and nice and so you know it kind of made me feel a little bit disconnected and so Mm. it's been really nice just like in these past couple days and in the future knowing that I'm going to be able to spend more time outside yeah Yeah. that's one of the beauties of Chicago and particularly Chicago winter paradoxically because it gets so morbid yeah. you can be excited and you can yeah. tell other people it was a beautiful day outside yeah. when yeah. it was 51 degrees and there was light available at 5 p.m. Yes. No, absolutely. I was like telling everyone. I was like texting my friend. Just like, guys, go life, outside. Life is gorgeous. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You're totally right. Like, it, it is paradoxical yeah. because people are like, oh, Chicago's weather is like, you know, the seasons are so sad, blah, blah, blah. But who else would appreciate 50 exactly. degrees? Exactly. Yeah. We Only get a to Chicago appreciate appreciates 50 degrees. Yeah. So, uh, you know, We're in partnership with Elevate and talking about environmental justice. And, you know, part of what we hope this series does is it teaches. And so you, as a student who is a part of the Chicago Youth Alliance for Climate Action, I want us to kind of steal from your check-in a little bit because you said you're really excited about tutoring. So kind of like borrow that model and like treat this as a tutoring session. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And we're excited to learn. Consider us fifth graders. (laughs) Yes, excited to learn new things. All right. uh, So as someone who has now committed and organized and is building a body that is, you know, from a generational perspective, trying to respond to the biggest issue Mm -hmm. literally in the history of the world, (laughs) how do you start to not compartmentalize it, but make it tangible or, or what piece do you decide to, to chew first as you want people to, to have a greater perspective? That's a really good question because I think part of what makes climate change such a difficult issue to talk about or tackle is because it's so enormous mm-hmm. that you don't even know where to begin. And I think so that's why I think for a lot of people and especially for a lot of young people, when you mention it or think about it, it fills you with this just like gloom. It's so big that I can't even begin to, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. can't even begin to like take a bite out of it, you know, and sort of combating against that feeling is hard and something that I, you know, a lot of the members who are in 
the organization and a lot of like other activists I know, like it's a, the most difficult part of it is mm-hmm. really just, you know, pushing yourself to find smaller goals and smaller victories and taking pride in that um, rather than letting the overwhelmingness of the issue take over. And so yesterday, actually, too, I um, was hosting this workshop at the Little Village Public Library and it was this. Shout out to the libraries. Yes. Shout out to the libraries. <laughs> Little Village Public Library is awesome. <laughs> also, like the building is made from all locally sourced materials, which wow. is really cool. It's a really cool space. But um, I was hosting this workshop that was basically, it was like a climate change workshop, but it wasn't like I was going to teach them about climate change. It was um, learning about climate change through doing art related to the environment, through mm. writing poetry and reading other poetry, and then through a group visioning activity. And it was overall a really great experience, but I think the thing that I pulled the most from it, just watching how everyone else responded, was starting from a point of realizing where your personal motivations are for caring about climate action or you know the work that we do, finding your personal motivations for it, and then expanding upon that and reflecting on what it is that you want to see come Mm -hmm. out of this work is the most important way to sort of start, I think, because it grounds you and it makes you not forget, you know, when things get really hard and when you realize how big the issue is, you know, starting from what do I want out of this? How has this impacted me? I think that's just a really good way to start. Uh, You've made our work so easy. uh, (laughs) You've given us two great questions. (laughs) (laughs) So for those questions that you teach people to start with, for you, what were those answers and how did you start with those questions? Yeah. Uh, So one of the first things that we did, um, it it was this like narrative poetry piece. And so what um, the question sort of prompt was, was after reading some poetry by really cool like activists um, and poetry regarding sort of how humans treat the environment, I encouraged them to reflect on the sounds, the you know, the the images that sort of came up from the poems, but then connect that to how they've experienced the environment around them. Mm. Um, and so some of the responses that we got from that was someone wrote about how Chicago's constantly changing seasons, you know, creates this like appreciation within them for spring, which was exactly what I had talked about earlier. And I was like, yes, every, you know, this is like a feeling that a lot of people have. A communal experience, yeah. Definitely a communal experience. Um, and then someone else wrote about how, it is that they got into activism in the first place. So they wrote about how they um, came to the climate strike back in 2019, Mm -hmm. the youth climate strike. They came to that in March and then wrote about how it inspired them to, you know, go to future marches and then get involved beyond that. Um, And then someone else also wrote about how growing up, they really loved the Chicago public parks. Mm. The park that was near their house was like a really a point of unity for their family and for like the people who lived in their neighborhood. And I just thought like hearing the diversity of experiences that people have had some, you know, smaller, some bigger, you know, um, some, you know, now or some that were really rooted in their childhood. It was just a really cool exercise. And it also brought everyone in the room together, um, which is also so important for workshops that are supposed to help you, you know, reconcile your emotions with the work that you do. Yeah. So for you, what what's your answer to that question of what grounds you in it? And what you're trying to create? Well, so for for me, the what I wrote about was growing up in Beijing in like a really tall, high rise building, and it was in a gated community. Um, and I was on the 24th floor. And I and not to get like don't get me wrong, I loved my childhood, but there was very very little access to nature or anything like nature. And mm. so like I didn't know the difference between real grass and turf grass mm. until after I moved here because pretty much everything was turf grass. And wow. so like. 
and they got they get really good they know how to make good turf grass like it looks like real grass but um i you know that was sort of just my experience and i know that it wasn't like when i you know as i was living in beijing and you know enjoying my childhood it's not like i was always you know oh i'm missing something like i'm missing trees i'm missing grass and missing you know blue skies like that's not really what i was thinking about cuz i didn't know that that was what the reality was for other people you know and so after i did move here the first thing i remember um being like shocked by was my mom and i moved into this little neighborhood um i think it's it was pretty far northwest i don't remember the exactly where it was but we got there we dropped our bags off and then the next morning i stepped outside because it was night when we arrived and i was like literally stunned by the fact that the sidewalks had like you know grass on it and like mm-hmm. that there were just trees everywhere and this was just a normal neighborhood like it wasn't like yeah. you know particularly lush but i was like i thought it was so beautiful mm-hmm. and then i think that realization when i was younger of what i had missed out on mm-hmm. is something that continues to motivate me today because mm-hmm. even if there's not that much i can do for like other kids who are in beijing who aren't experiencing this who are you know having to wear oxygen masks to go to school and stuff like even if there's nothing i can do for them there is something that i can do for chicago yeah. and it's the city that i love now so whatever yeah. i can do to make that a better place for myself and for other you know students and children like that is my motivation. Mm. That's, That's beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. 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 I f- I feel you. <laughs> um I feel like you kind of answered it in, in that bottom part, but as I was just hearing your story, I'm thinking like big picture and how your identity and the intersections of your experience like really play into the conversation of climate change <laughs> and pollution like globally cuz once you turn on the the boo-boo news person. I'm a, I hate the news. <laughs> Once you turn on the whack news, yes. <laughs> uh, the conversation is often reduced to like an America-China um, yeah. discourse, which obviously has inaccuracies. Um, and it is like bifurcated or, or this binary in a way that's inappropriate because even the air quote, no pun in, No, I'm intending that pun. <laughs> that's a pun. Intended. Retroactively intentional pun. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, a rip. Retroactively that's a, that's, a, that's an all right. It's a rip. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the air quote Chinese pollution, even so much of that is um, consumed or, or locked into American production and in particular. Right. So so in the, the discourse, it is America and China and like you and your body have been living that experience. Mm-hmm. So I was just I'm curious and interested as to how that perspective like informs your work and your practices. Thank you for asking that question. I always want to talk about this because oh, great. I, love I have so questions. many thoughts <laughs> and they're they're a little bit disorganized, no, but I have them. so many thoughts on this topic because like as you mentioned, what's been going on with the coronavirus but also the trade wars, you know, like mm-hmm. there is this tension that exists in media with China and, you know, this perception of China as a threat. And I think that, you know, like you said, in a lot of ways that is distorted, especially when it comes to the coronavirus stuff, you know, that's like racism. And we and a lot of people, I think, are starting to realize that and hopefully reducing like the number of, you know, cases where you see like I heard the other day that someone who was in Chinatown who was like choking, but then no one wanted to give him mm. like CPR mm. because they were like, what if he has the coronavirus? Mm. I don't want to, you know, like stuff like that that's yeah. been happening. I feel like we need like a bell or a quote from what your answer that started. The, that's just racism. Like, yeah, so that, that is just racism. We have to spend so much time talking about if we just, no, no. Right, we're going <laughs> to, a new sound effect. We can have, effect. We have a racism boo. Yeah. <laughs> boo. boo. Just like a crowd going. Yeah. <laughs> that's just racism. Yes. That's all that is. <laughs> yes. No, absolutely. And and so there's definitely that tension. But also, 
I think particularly when it comes to how we talk about China's role in climate change, I think that's something that is really important to address because for like China, we know is a big emitter of CO2 and greenhouse gases because of the rapid development that's been occurring mm-hmm. and, you know, it's in the past decade and still going on today. And even though they're trying to be more conscious or at least, you know, claim to try and be more conscious about, you know, how they how they continue with this development, keeping in mind that we have climate change as one of the biggest threats in the world. It's obviously a difficult task to do if you're trying to bring millions of people out of like poverty and mm-hmm. out of right. and this and this obviously happened here in the United States too it just happened a long time ago mm-hmm. and it also happened a long time ago for European countries right. and so even though the majority of what we see in the atmosphere was released a long time ago and the warming that we that we experience is a result of emissions that had occurred when you know America was like modernizing and when Europe was modern yeah. yes right what we now do is we blame countries like China and India for Mm -hmm. being the biggest polluters of CO2, even though they're doing exactly what had been done already. And obviously, this doesn't mean that they shouldn't, you know, have any responsibility, because I think the reality of the situation is that the world is going to have to take measures, even if it's not necessarily fair. But I do think that it's important to understand that it's a little bit unfair to be like, you need to be the one who takes on all of this while we sit back and say that, hey, we're reducing our emissions. Like, it's fine. I think it's unfair to say that because it doesn't take into account that we'd already done this. We're refusing to take responsibility now for what we did in our past. It's like, oh, you're reducing them now? How'd they get so high? Exactly. (laughs) Right, right. Like, how did we get here in the first place? It wasn't countries like China. It wasn't countries like India. It Mm. was during the Industrial Revolution when, you know, and and that was before, obviously, climate change had become such an issue that it is now. But even in modern times, we just have to be more mindful, I think, of how we, you know, how we talk about that. And so that's that's something I've just been thinking about, too. Um, But what you asked with the identity piece, um, in recent months, really, I've been trying to more reconcile my identity as like an East Asian immigrant and my identity as like an environmental activist because I think when I first started doing the work, even though in the back of my mind, I always knew that the reason why I was passionate about it was because of where how I'd grown up and where I grew up. But that hadn't really moved itself into the work that I did. So mm-hmm. when I started off my freshman year and joined the Chicago Youth Alliance for Climate Action, it was mostly because I just thought, you know, climate change was an issue and I wanted to learn more about it. But I think I I would say around halfway through my junior year, I started becoming more aware of sort of the history and the presence of Asian American activism as like an identity-based activism. Mm. And once I started getting more into that world, and I'm I'm very, very tiny bit in it. I'm not really, I would not call myself, you know, an Asian American activist as in I am someone who advocates for Asian American issues exclusively. Mm. Like that is not what I do. Mm-hmm. I think that, but I think that it's very worthwhile for me to understand how those two things might relate to each other, like how my environmental work might relate to, you know, the work that I do want to do for the Asian American community, you know, in Chicago. And so then this summer, I did the summer program called Sprague, which is hosted by the Sierra Club Student Coalition. Um, And it was a really, really awesome experience. But the coolest part of it for me was that at the camp, we formed an Asian Pacific 
caucus mm. like it was just like a group of like asian people who like came and then we just every day spent an hour discussing the different experiences that we've had you mm. know some of us were immigrants and some of us you know were like second or third generation mm. you know like it was definitely like a variety of different identities and different experiences that were in the room and we talked about so many things we talked about like how colorism is a really big thing that exists in a lot of asian communities mm. and asian countries um and then the way that we experience like the myth the model minority mm. in you know our you know you know in our separate lives and so that was a really really valuable experience for me and it made me think so much more deeply about who I am because, you know, part of what happened after I moved here was in my sort of frenzy to assimilate into American society, I had buried so much of my Chinese identity. Mm. And so when I began my work as an environmentalist, that identity was like buried inside me. Yeah. And now I'm trying to like unbury it. I'm yeah. trying to be more proud of who I am. Yeah. Um, and so because of that, I'm trying to think of ways that I can, you know, unite those two works. Yeah. And so something that I think I'm going to plan for Whitney Young for my school um, mm -hmm. is having like an Asian-American activism panel um, where like students can come and hear from kick-ass Asian-American activists in Chicago about the work they do, about, you know, how their identity inspires them, informs their work. Um, because I think that even though Whitney Young, you know, is a very like politically progressive school for the most part, there is a lack of, I think, political organizing or unity within the Asian population, mm. which is, you know, I think something that there is a need for in our yeah. current climate, you know, and yeah. I, I think that that could be a really important way for students at our school who feel like they're less seen and less heard and generally overlooked, you know, by the school administration, by other students, a really important space for them to share those issues that we don't talk about as much yeah. in society. So hopefully that's sort of the start. I think yeah. that is going to be the launching pad of what hopefully will be a new series in my, like, combination of my social activism and climate activism together, and like yeah. Asian American activism and bring it all together. Yeah, this is, this is some uh, real reverse senioritis here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so much <laughs> to do. <laughs> so, so in starting to, um, in this introductory foray into learning about people, uh, either contemporary in Chicago or historically, are there any people who you've come across who you see yourself in lineage to when you mm. look at their work and you go, Oh, I'm not the first person putting these pieces together. And the fact is these pieces exist in conversation and in cooperation already. That's a great question. I honestly, I wish that I could say there was someone who inspires me in that way. I think there are many, many people who inspire me with the work that they do, but not because I see myself as being so similar, but mm -hmm. more because I see them as being more courageous and more, mm. you know, and th and they encourage me to push myself further, you know. Yeah. But some something that I was thinking about was I was reading about um, these two activists in Beijing and their young students um, who started off with trying to make their school a more sustainable place and then ended up bringing it to be more of like a Beijing-wide initiative. Mm. And I can't remember their two names off the top of my head right now, but as I was reading about the challenges that they faced as a result of their activism, because Beijing and China is generally more strict about things like that, you have to be kind of working directly with the government to be mm -hmm. a nonprofit organization or be like, you know, an, you know, that kind of organization. Whereas here, there's definitely like 
you do not need to be working with the government to exist. Yeah. Like, absolutely not, right? But in China, it's very, very hard to exist and to not get shut down if you if your goals don't align with the government. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for them, even though the Chinese government has been more willing to accept demands and pressure from the public about taking action on climate, they're still unwilling to see it be disruptive in, a, in right. any way. And so what the students were doing was sort of a take on youth climate strikes here, right? But they weren't they weren't really leaving school, but they had engaged in things that were seen as being disruptive to the classroom, you know. Mm-hmm. They were, you know, flagging things that, you know, in the middle of class that like hadn't been flagged before. Like they had put up posters and things in their school and then they like, got them taken down. And so mm-hmm. sort of seeing the challenges that they faced, it kind of made me feel like I wish I was there. You know, mm-hmm. I don't it's not so much that I think we're so similar. It just made me think about if I had stayed in Beijing, you know, mm-hmm. if I had hadn't moved here when I was eight hopefully I would be them, you know, hopefully that is the person I would be, that I would be, you know, speaking truth to power and, you know, being this really awesome person who's breaking down these, you know, conversational barriers that have existed in Chinese school system, but also in China for so long. Like, I really hope that that would be me, but maybe it wouldn't be. Maybe I'm not courageous enough to be that person, but it just kind of made me think. And I'm, I am definitely inspired by them just mm-hmm. knowing that they are doing something that's very difficult for the record so are you <laughs> <laughs> like this version of you is doing good yeah. shit shout outs to you it's yes. doing good stuff this yeah. version of Susie. <laughs> yeah, yeah um dame did you yeah. i do have a quick recommendation for you though um one of my greatest political heroes is chinese american uh, her name is grace lee boggs uh she was first generation she was raised in new york her father was actually one of the first uh, immigrants to open a Chinese restaurant in America. So that gave her some access and educational privilege. She ended up living in Chicago in her 20s. Um, and the conditions were so bad because she was living in a black neighborhood that that then pushed her into organizing and like black-centered liberation movement. Um, and then she married a labor organizer, a black man named James Boggs or Jimmy. Uh, and they became this like powerhouse couple and, and movement leadership. And so she um, throughout her life, because she lived like be 100 years old, um, had disconnects to, from her Chinese identity and took her like mm-hmm. till she was like 50 or 60 to, to, to visit, um, struggled with like not knowing the language. Uh, but also it's a, she's, you know, one of the greatest examples, I think, of like movement philosophy, but particularly to be invested in something that's not just completely rooted to your identity. So like mm-hmm. the FBI uh, mislabeled her as Afro-Chinese because she was so deeply invested in black liberation work in Detroit where like their home base was set up. Uh, so her autobiography is called Living for Change. Living and so change. I definitely yeah. recommend it. And a lot of her work was around sustainability. Right. Um, and so a lot of the urban farming movement that has really taken hold in Detroit in a way at a scale that it doesn't exist anywhere else in the United States, the Bog Center and... Grace and Jimmy really pushed a lot of that forward. Um, so listeners, we'll add it to the, I think it's already on the Ergo reading list. If it's not, it should be. Yeah. But yeah, just a little, okay, a little thank rec- you. You didn't I, know you were getting a recommendation yeah. today. I, yeah. I love book recommendations yeah. and that sounds really awesome. And you I don't will, have anything I else will, going on. You got time yeah, to I'm, read. I'm good. <laughs> but for, but for the work that you're, you're thinking of doing at school, she's a, she's a pioneer, particularly yes, in urban Yes, okay, absolutely. Um, so we, we've, we've talked about your entry point and kind of your foundation and how big all of this is and that, you know, so much of the work is just getting people to start to get involved. Uh, from that, let's narrow it down. What are some of the targets or issues or active sites of harm or resistance or, you know, liberatory 
action that is in your focus right now? We work with the youth climate strikes. I think that's that's a good place to start because mm-hmm. I think strikes and protests and marches like that are the easiest way for people to get involved, like mm-hmm. right off of, the, you know, like yeah. you don't need to have a ton of previous knowledge. You don't need to have a ton of previous experience to, you know, be able to come make a banner and then, you know, walk with us. And so the youth climate strikes has been a really great point of seeing students come together in a way that is rebellious, but in a way that it's still very like friendly, you know, like everyone who comes to the strike, you know, they're an ally. They're either my age or younger. We've seen like 11 year olds come to the strikes. And so seeing that is really amazing for, I think, giving that, giving an energy to the movement. So I would say continuing my work with that um, is great. I'm not one of the main planners, no credit for it. It's more, I think that looking at what the energy is during these strikes Mm. um, is always something that motivates me and motivates other people too. Mm. And as for some of the other work that we're doing and that, you know, I'm sort of really hoping to accomplish before, you know, potentially leaving the city for college, Mm. which is really scary, um, is the work that's being done through the Ready for 100 Chicago campaign. Um, And it's a collective. So I've been a part of the Ready for 100 Chicago collective for about Three years now, they had approached us as a youth organization and asked if we wanted to take part in being a part of Chicago's energy transition. But what started off as just us, you know, sort of signing on for, yeah, we, we want to help Chicago transition to 100% renewable energy has now become such like a community-based and equity-based training for me. I think, mm. you know, so much of what goes into the Ready for 100 collective. It's a really diverse and huge network of different organizations around the city, including environmental justice, community-based organizations, including faith-based organizations, youth organizations. And so because it's a very diverse and wide-ranging coalition, when we wrote the resolution, which basically stated the goal of 100% renewable energy by 2035, that resolution then passed in City Hall, but it was a resolution that had been written by like 20 organizations, which made it, I think, very different from a lot of the policy making that we see hmm. when it comes to the environment. Because so many of the policies- Or just that, Chicago. Or Chicago, right, period. <laughs> so yeah. many of these policies are written without input from the community, without input from the stakeholders and the people who are most affected by it. Right. And so really seeing what does a just process for getting communities involved in enacting you know, the policies and the laws and the things that will affect them. What does that look like? And so that's been really educational for me. Um, But there's a lot more work that we're still doing coming up into the end of 2020, because by the end of 2020, we need to draft like an actual transition plan with different policy pillars and like benchmarks to meet um, Mm -hmm. in order to get to 100% renewable energy, obviously, rather than it just being like a token, like, what are we going to do and write and pass to make this happen? And also, what? how does budget play into it? And so it's kind of a nightmare, actually. No, dem- demands are easy. <laughs> plans are hard. Yeah. It's a nightmare, <laughs> but it's kind of a good nightmare, yeah. you know, where I'm yeah. like, this is this is hard. Like, like we, I, you know, I was in a meeting with someone from the budget committee, um, and they were like, we literally have no money. Chicago is, you know, it has a deficit of like $1.2 billion. Like, it's gone up from $800 million last year. And then you realize the monumental work that is ahead. Mm -hmm. But it also is reassuring in a way because 
I don't know. I don't know. I can't explain why it's reassuring. I think the thing that makes it a little bit reassuring is now that we have this coalition of organizations and we're working with the city, you see that everyone does care. Mm-hmm. It's just you need to keep pushing constantly yeah. to put it at the top of everyone's agenda. Right. And that's the thing is everyone knows it's an issue. Everyone at City Hall knows it's an issue. But it's not necessarily always a priority just because right. of so many other things that we see in Chicago. Yeah, there's a really big difference between a, an agreement and a priority. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's the biggest thing is making it a priority. Mm. And so in the, these next few months, it's going to be a lot more community engagement work. We're trying to have, you know, a series of hub conversations around the city. We're going to ask an organization in that community to host a conversation and we'll provide them with like food and money and things to make it, you know, work for them and deepen conversations around the city about what we want to see in an energy transition. And so the idea is for communities that maybe struggle with like job training programs for them to flag that issue. And then that makes it to the top of the agenda for Mm. what we want to see in the transition plan for communities who want to flag, you know, lead pipes and how that might affect their schools or their homes to make that to the top of the agenda. And so the idea is really crowdsourcing these tensions and issues around the city. Um, And so I'm excited to be doing that, too, because Mm. I think that's really the best way to ensure that you're not writing something for only one group of people, but mm-hmm. you're writing something that is actually beneficial for everyone. Mm. Incredibly valuable, um, not just experience for you, but even just vicarious experience for me. And thinking about <laughs> what, what, what does it take to actually start thinking about building policy? Yeah. Um, are there any, whether it's in how those meetings are being built or in any of the other work, are there any metaphors or like systems in nature that have been useful in figuring out how to organize and move people and policy? Oh, that's that's a good question. Okay, yes, actually. Um, the other day I was talking to my mentor. Um, I, I call her my mentor. Her name is Kyra Woods. Does she call she, herself your mentor? <laughs> Does she accept it? I think she accepts it. I, you know what? I think she. I think that is the best word for our relationship. Kyra, because call I, in, confirm yes or no, please. Shout out to Kyra. Kyra Woods. Definitely shout out to Kyra Woods. <laughs> She's incredible. She's an organizer with the Sierra Club and is sort of the lead on the Ready for 100 Chicago um, campaign. And so I've been working with her for a while now. But the other day we were we were sort of discussing what is sort of an image or a thing that we can use to describe the community engagement process that we, that we think of. Um, and what does it mean to have process be rooted in equity and results be rooted in equity. And so what we came up with was kind of like a tree with Hmm. um, it's like the roots that go all the way deep down in the soil. Those are the communities. And so they're going to be the bedrock, the foundation for the rest of the tree. If you cut off a tree's roots, it dies, it falls apart. Right. And so the communities inform what is the trunk, and that's going to be like the policy writing, the plan. And then at the very top in the leaves and the branches um, are like the government and the mm-hmm. government and how, you know, what they put out. Yeah. And so I think this was a really good visual for reminding ourselves that everything needs to be rooted in the communities. Yeah. If you start with just working with, you know, the city, it's going to fall apart. It's not going to be a just equitable transition. It's going to be something that was written by a very small group of people. Mm-hmm. Oh, we love a root base. And yes, we do. You just got some dead leaves. <laughs> yeah. like, that's just a pile. That's yeah, not exactly. <laughs> so, so in the, the push right now for 100, um, is there specific ways that a person listening should or could support? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I would say that the best way to support is either to just join the collective as an individual, not necessarily as an organization if you're not part of one, or to just show up to a community conversation near you. Um, And those are going to be happening mostly during the spring and the summer. So just going to a hub conversation with, you know, 30, 40 people and sitting down and, you know, investing four or five hours of your life because they are they are long. You know, they're supposed they are supposed to really dig deeply into energy conversations. Right. And we want to see. And so if you're willing to sort of sacrifice that part of your day, it's really, really a valuable thing to get your feedback and to hear it, what you want to see in the city. Mm. Um, and so another quick plug, I'm organizing a youth hub conversation and it's going to be really good. It's going to be an intimate conversation, I think. Um, we're not hoping to have like 200 people there or anything, but it is supposed to really help us identify broader youth needs for the transition, mm-hmm. which is not something that our my like organization has done in particular. And mm-hmm. so it's going to be cool to expand upon that specifically um, in April. Speaking of that, so what you just said is learning to serve the needs of young people in this moment. A lot of what we do up here is imagining what the versions of us 10, 20, 50 years from now will need to know about this moment because we know that the history of resistance work, movement work, and justice work often disappears and gets erased. So what would you hope that 50 years from now version of you, so a young person (laughs) dipping their toes and really fully investing in this fight, what would you hope they know about this moment in time and the work happening now? Well, I would hope very sincerely that 50 years from now they wouldn't have to know anything really (laughs) about Well, I want them to know about the history, but I really hope there's never going to be another youth climate strike ever again. There's never going to be a need to have youth summits or, you know, coalitions ever, because I would really hope that by then we'll have thoroughly addressed and seen the error of our ways. And, Mm. you know, but in terms of what I would really want them to know about, you know, the year 2020 and what's going on, you know, in the city of Chicago, I want them to know that this was the time in history when young people all around the world all around the world, decided that enough was enough. And I don't know if that is going to be, you know, written into the history books, Mm -hmm. but I think it's important because, you know, I think it's really, really been in the past five or six years that young people have been taken more seriously in activist spaces. And I think part of it was because, you know, we, we saw March for Our Lives. We saw, you know, global climate strikes. You see these issues that have really infiltrated schools and, you know, youth communities and no one was doing anything about them. And so that really motivated, I think, a worldwide shift towards youth activism. Mm. And I hope that that's a shift that remains. You know, I hope that young people don't have to fight for their lives, you know, Mm -hmm. but I do think that young people are always going to have a perspective that's a little different. Um, And that is a perspective that should be included in every space. And so whether that looks like activism on the ground or if it just looks like more young people getting included without them having to beg for it, you know, that's what I hope is going to happen happen in the future. And so for now, just I would want them to know that young people did it themselves, Mm. that it wasn't adults who took them into the space. It was them forcing themselves into spaces they should have already been included in. That's 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 beautiful. We got to wind down. I have one last one to to get us out of here. It was two, but I I figured out how to make it into one. Um, and, 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 and it's a two-part question. Okay. <laughs> basically. Um, and, and, and what you just offered really, really helps ask it. So while we're here having this conversation is because, you know, Elevate 
as an entity that is committed and working in the field of environmental justice, and I think they should be applauded, is looking to see how they can do better. And mm-hmm. so it's almost like a learning you know, exercise. And so with that kind of in the context, um, thinking about folks who are established in this work, um, what are some things that, that they may be short-sighted on or not looking at? But I think particularly within the generational divide, because I think that is what is central right now, not only in terms of um, the impact, right? Because young people, you're younger than us, but still, we're still pretty spry. We're going to have to be around. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to we're ex- we're gonna have to, you know, cash that check. I only have mm-hmm. one bed. <laughs> so I'll be here for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so, so to be concise about it, you know, for folks who are interested, where have you seen um, maybe a short-sighted perspective? And particularly, how do generational divides or coalition play into how you see your work? That's a wonderful question. So I think that the biggest gap that exists is maybe this question of like expertise. And I, I wouldn't say this is the case for really any of the environmental you know, activists that I work with. But I do think that especially in past years, the environmental movement has really been centered around this idea of like experts, right? Mm. Scientists telling us what's going on. Then you have policymakers to try and address it. We know that the beginning, the very beginnings of the environmental movement was a very insulated movement that mostly consisted of just lobbying from like old white people. And it's not that what they did was bad in any way. You know, some of the most important laws regarding conservation and sustainability were passed as a result of those white people lobbying, you know, but... <laughs> you hear that, white people? You, you, you got, did a good thing. <laughs> you got a rare ergo shout-out on white people. <laughs> right. Cherish this moment. You're not going to get it again. Listeners... No, that happened. That does not... You're not dreaming. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. Yes, for sure. You also... that You know, that that work was important, but... And also, I just want to add that simultaneously... Communities of color were doing just as important or environmental organizing work. It just wasn't codified. Exactly, and that, that history was exactly, erased. exactly. And so, so you have there you go. The, that's perfect. You have the biggest <laughs> I emphasis. Feel better now. <laughs> just, just, just over here sweating. Just, just a pinkish sweat. That's happening. global warming. I am warming. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. No, no, that's that's yes, definitely. I mean, you have this emphasis that's placed on, you know, older white environmentalists, whereas communities of color that, you know, that were saying that their communities were being wrecked by some of the results of, you know, industrialization and some of the results of capitalism, you know, were being completely overlooked. And so I think in recent years, there has been more of a shift in the movement to to highlight those voices. But that is a shift that continues to need shifting, you know, yeah. like there's, you, it needs some push even further forward and communities of color and minority communities and, you know, lower income communities, like they are being more and more placed at the front, but they are not at the front yet. Mm-hmm. And they need to be prioritized in every policy that we see. And so with all of that in mind, the idea that you have to be an expert and trained in, you know, like this specific specialized field for your voice to matter. Mm -hmm. That has been, I think, a dominant narrative. Um, And that especially applies to young people because I think a lot of times when you have adults who have maybe been in this work for a long time and like know all the nitty gritty policy and know all the nitty gritty, you know, data work, they tend to overlook people who are newer or fresher or who are coming in with less of that technical knowledge or background, and then they're being excluded as a result of that. Mm. And so something that we, you know, we were trying to figure out with 
you, the Chicago Youth Alliance for Climate Action in our meetings was how to make it, you know, information be presented in a way that is not seen as like, I'm feeding you this, but this is for you to take if you want it. Mm-hmm. And so I think sort of changing and this is also just maybe an educational shift that needs to occur, you know, occur to a pedagogical sure. shift. But regardless, I think moving away from the idea that you need to be an expert um, is really important because obviously being trained, you know, in university for something is not the same thing as having actually experienced it. And so in, you know, in that way, those experiences that you have, like communities of color have when it comes to things like pollution, those experiences should be amplified much louder, you know, than just the experts. Mm-hmm. And so for definitely for young people too, you know, we shouldn't be disregarded because we haven't necessarily had the technical training for these things. Instead, our perspective and our opinion should be taken as a unique one that isn't necessarily rooted in being an expert, but is rooted in our personal beliefs and feelings and, you know, experiences that we've had, you know, as young people who are facing something really, really scary. Um, And that is valuable regardless of whether or not there is expertise, I think. Big thanks to Susie for coming through and talking with us. We really appreciate it. That was certainly a great conversation. You can find out more about the Chicago Youth Alliance for Climate Action. Their website is cyaca.org. Follow them on all socials at Chicago Youth A-C-A. And do whatever you can to follow up, get involved, stay informed on what's going on with the Ready for 100 initiative. We have four more fantastic episodes of this podcast coming to you over the next four months. Subscribe, review, comment, tell a friend, tell an acquaintance, tell a coworker, tell a prospective employer. Just get everybody on board. Just search Climate Change Makers on your podcast app. You can follow us at Ergo Radio, A-I-R-G-O Radio. Subscribe to Ergo for more of these conversations with people doing this work in fields across the spectrum. Much love to the land and people. Peace. 